There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know there's been some criticism, particularly around the, the, the reduction in numbers of, of the infantry fighting vehicles in Land 400 Phase 3, but you have to put this in the context of the strategy. And in fact, um, this is actually reshaping army to sit at the centre of that denial strategy. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, head of the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. So in today's episode of the National Security Podcast, it's a real pleasure to be joined by Professor Peter Dean to discuss the uh, recently published Defence Strategic Review by the Australian Government and what it really means for Australian strategy and defence in this contested era in the Indo-Pacific. So, uh, Peter, welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's great to be here. So to introduce our guest in a bit more detail, uh, Professor Peter Dean is the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. And, and throughout his academic career, he's been a colleague here at ANU, including uh, elsewhere across Australia's academic landscape. Uh, but most recently, and the reason we're having the conversation today, is that Professor Dean was a co-lead of the 2023 Defence Strategic Review Secretariat, where he served as senior advisor and indeed as a principal author uh, for the uh, Defence Strategic Review, uh, working closely with the independent leads of that um, really important initiative, Stephen Smith and Angus Houston. Uh, welcome, Peter, as I said, and let's get the conversation underway. The Defence Strategic Review, the DSR, as uh, we'll call it, for the rest of this conversation, uh, has been a really important uh, document in Australian defence and strategic, strategic policy, uh, arguably for many, many years. But of course, it's made a real impact this year in, in 2023, alongside announcements that government has made regarding AUKUS, for example. Uh, it's generated a lot of media headlines, a lot of interest. It's generated its share of debate and controversy. And I guess the privilege we have today is to spend some time with you, uh, a key participant in the process, a key uh, one of the key authors, to get some insight as to what on earth the DSR really is and why does it matter. Uh, so a bit of demystifying here, Peter. Can you just begin perhaps by explaining to us what is the DSR uh, and give us a bit of context? Sure, no problem. And it's a pleasure to be here and um, uh, I just want to say up front, of course, you know, I was very grateful to the government, but particularly Serangus Houston and Stephen Smith for allowing me to be involved in the process of working on and delivering the DSR to the government. So as I'm sure your listeners will know, Australia's defence planning has largely been expressed through defence white papers. The last time there was an independent review done was the Dib review back in uh, 1986, and of course, Paul Dib being an icon of, of our field uh, and a former colleague at, uh, at ANU as he still is emeritus professor here. And uh, if you talk to Paul um, about that review, it, his approach to that review is brought in by Kim Beasley, then basically because there was a, a sort of a, a problem with the transition of the, the Defence of Australia concept into force structure and capability, and that's what really his review was focused on. Fast forward to 2023 and with the new government coming into office, the government had announced that the, the previous defence strategic update delivered by the Morrison government in 2020, that 
the new Labor Albanese government agreed to, what they were keen on doing was uh, then looking at well, what do you do about the end of 10 years warning time? What do you do about that document's outline of the, the major problems that we had to face in the strategic environment. So it was kind of like a bit of an action plan. I think if you look at the Labor Party in opposition, they committed to a forced posture review. The last forced posture review was done in 2012 by the then minister, Stephen Smith. Um, that was translated into the 2013 white paper, a very important white paper in particular, as you will know, Rory, because it embraced the Indo-Pacific concept. Um, and there hadn't been a forced posture review since. So the Labor, Labor Party in opposition committed to that. But when they got into government, they realized there was a much bigger job to do. And, and that forced posture review commitment evolved into a, into a defense strategic review. And so as the terms of reference that was given to the review um, says, the review is to be a holistic consideration of Australia's defense force structure and posture including force disposition, preparedness, strategy, which is really important, and associated investments, including all elements of Defence's integrated investment plan. So this is a big document. Um, uh, the leads uh, were very animated with the notion of starting with the strategy first. And of course, we know strategy has got you know, material factors and it's got political factors. So they wanted to focus on getting the context right, the strategic environment right, and laying down a strategy before then moving on to looking at how that strategy would inform the force structure, the posture, the preparedness, and the other material factors related to defense. So it's an independent document. So it's not a white paper. It's not a national defense um, strategy. It's an input to strategy. And I think that's really important. So the leads were given a task, which was delivered on the 14th of February to this document, and that is an input to inform um, the government's considerations. The public version that we saw um, come out is government's version of a public version of this particular document that they um, have put into the public sphere for this discussion and also to, to indicate to the public which parts of the review that they have, uh, are bringing into policy. So I think we need to understand what, you, what the public has seen is not the DSR. So it's, it's a version of the Defence Strategic Review rather the DSR which the leads delivered to the government on the 14th of February. So the context of the DSR, and there's a lot there, and we'll come back to what you can share about what's in the DSR in a moment, but the context of the DSR, you've given a sense of, I guess, the policy and the political context. Um, what can you say about the strategic context? I mean, we've referred already to the strategic environment, the Indo-Pacific uh, Obvious major factors there being the you know the, not only the rise of Chinese power but the way that China is um, is using uh, deploying its um, its power its military modernization its power across the spectrum the way the United States is responding to that the way other countries in the region are responding as well um, how do you read the context strategically for the DSR and 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 I guess how is this reflected at least in the public facing document. Yeah, look, that's a that's a really good question. I think the first point, as mentioned before, we had a defence strategy update in 2022. The Labor Party then in opposition- Sorry, in 2020. 2020, yeah, sorry, yeah. it's 20, my mistake. Um, the, the Labor Party in opposition basically supported that document and that was the foundation piece coming into the defence strategic review. So the first piece of work was really about updating- the DSU over the last couple of years. So we, the, obviously we started the Defence Strategic Review in August it, of last it year. it said some pretty dark things about the strategic environment. A absolutely. Well. you know. So the end of 10-year warning time the DSR talks about comes from the DSU yeah. document. Like no um, warning time effectively. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And and the you know the fundamentally changed strategic circumstances. There's a lot of continuity when you look at the, the 2020 document and the 2023 document when it comes down to the strategic environment assessment. But what it sort of says is it, things hasn't things have not got any better. In fact, they've become a bit more acute in those last three years. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has been a significant factor. The tension around Taiwan has been a significant factor. You know that what's been happening with North Korea and uh, and their missile testing these have all you know played into. And of course, the the COVID pandemic have all played into that that assessment. But I think the key thing is that you know the document talks about. Um, the strate significant strategic risks that we face in our current strategic circumstances and how they're radically different to really what Australia has largely dealt with in that post-Second World War period. Mm -hmm. And this is really def defined by, you know, major power strategic competition. 
And of course, as the document says, is that you know our major alliance partner, the United States, is no longer the unipolar leader of the Indo-Pacific. And the region has seen this return of major power strategic competition, which is really the defining feature of our region and the defining feature of our time. So the risks we face are fundamentally different. If you go back and, for instance, look at, you know, we mentioned the DIB review before. DIB was working in the context of, of low-level threats or escalated low-level threats. Now what we're dealing, as the Defence Strategic Update pointed out, is the end of warning time for major war a major conflict in our region. And that's a significant change to the risk profile that we're dealing with and and hence some of the big changes that the document goes through with. And just on that, I'll, um, you know, we recently lost um, Alan Gingell, one of the greatest minds in our field. And I, I, I've blatantly plagiarised, not plagiarised but acknowledged, used a line and paraphrased a line that Alan wrote a couple of years ago, which he says, look, every generation of scholars or generation of policymakers and stuff likes to think that they live in, in, in a unique or important or significant strategic age. And almost, you know, every time it comes along, we live in different times or this is unique or this is important. But Alan actually wrote, but this time it's actually true. Like we're actually living in an age where the strategic forces are fundamentally different. You know, the strategic center of gravity for the globe is now the Indo-Pacific, our home. No longer are we talking about the, the tyranny of distance, but the power of proximity. And I think that's really important. Strategic competition is not just happening around the globe. It's happening in our region. It's happening on our doorstep as we've seen, and it's happening in regions that directly affect Australia's national interests. And of course, as the DFAT capability statement that's just came out said, you know, the, the international system that we've, it's been so great for Australia is under extreme stress at the moment. Um, and so all of these combining factors mean that we're in a different strategic era. We're in the post, post-Cold War era. We're in the era of strategic competition. And we really need to reframe our defence policy and our, our broader approach to national security around that. And this applies uh, you know, enormously to Australia's interest, Australia's position in the world. And just by the way, I'm really glad that you acknowledged the work of Alan Gingell. And uh, I'm looking forward to ways for the college to really recognize the enormous contribution uh, that Alan Gingell made and you know we're all very deeply saddened to lose to lose Alan uh, the context for Australia for your work or for the work of the DSR then is not simply uh, I guess and I'm putting words in your mouth here so please challenge me Peter but it's not simply dealing with uh, you know, extreme scenarios of uh, invasion or Australia being a target of aggression. It's it, it's a much more sophisticated context than that by the sound of things, but it does take into account the, the risk of serious strategic breakdown, indeed war, in our region. Is that fair to say? Yeah, look, I think that's fair to say. And uh, one of the things I'd like to to point the listeners to is to the wonderful speech Penny Wong gave at the press club only a week before the DSR was launched. What people wouldn't have realised at the time was that, in my view, is really sort of the first speech that articulates what was in the DSR. A lot of the language in her speech was language from the Defence Strategic Review. And as the, the document points out, statecraft is an important framing piece for the way Australia has to do not just whole of government but whole of nation efforts. So it was actually excellent to see that the foreign minister was leading by scoping out that region. And if you look at the title of the speech, she puts the balance of power in the title of her speech. She talks about the importance of maintaining a favourable balance of power in the region because that's incredibly important to ensuring that that rules-based international order or that international system, depending on how you want to call it or define it, which has been supportive of Australian national interests, is maintained, but also that a balance of power in the region, as she said, is fundamentally about avoiding any other state, and in particular a state becoming the hegemon in the region who has uh, a hierarchical view of how order should work because that would be fundamentally detrimental to Australia's interest and sovereignty, but not just our interest, but the interests of the other states in the region. Um, you know, Penny Wong likes to use the phrase uh, strategic equilibrium. Um, you know, as a strategic studies person, I'd more, you know, often talk about the balance of power in the region and a favourable balance of power ensures that Australia can um, 
pursue its interest in the international community, maintain its sovereignty, and also that other states in the region can maintain their sovereignty and work towards an international order where they can do that free of coercion. So let's move a little bit closer to the uh, the content, to the guts of the DSR. And as you said uh, at the outset, you know, and it's quite clear from um, uh, publicly available information, there's been an unclassified uh, version of the uh, DSR released, uh, which rewards very close reading, uh, including, I think, sometimes for the lines that speak in fairly careful language uh, about the strategic environment. But there's also a classified version, and I think it's on public record that the classified version is much longer, has more recommendations. I'm presuming that uh, your role uh, in the process means that there are certain things you cannot say publicly about the classified version, so I probably won't push you too hard on that, Peter, but it would be useful if you can give us a sense in general terms of uh, the distinction between the classified and unclassified versions. Yeah, look, so as I mentioned before, the the document that's in the public domain is a government document. So it starts off with the minister's overview. It ends with a section at the back um, relation to the recommendations um, in the review and the government's response to those. And part B of that document is sort of the guts of it is is a version of the DSR. So the Deputy Prime Minister went on record in Parliament and said when he received it that the DSR Mm. um, handed over by the independent leads. um, The classified version. Yeah, it was 157 pages long plus appendices and with 108 recommendations. I think it's 60-odd pages within the public release, so there's about 100-odd pages there that that doesn't translate. Um, It's, you know... It was a highly classified review on the terms of reference, um, asked the the independent leads to deliver that. And, and Sir Angus and Stephen were, were very focused on doing what they sure was, saw was their task and their job for government, which is to deliver that classified review. Then it was up to government to decide if they wanted to release a public version and what the contents of, of that would be. So um, what I could say is that what you get in the public version and what I'm really pleased about what they've done with the public version is the key concepts are there. Mm-hmm. The key ideas and the key concepts and the key strategy and the, and, the, and the key directions are all in there. Now, the nuance around that, the detail around that, you know, obviously the detail around some sensitive parts of the strategic environment, the sensitive assessments of that, uh, capability assessments, um, uh, have remained classified as as they should well in a in a national security document, um, and I think the government's to be commended on a, on another thing. That, I mean, we handed over as a team, and Sir Angus personally handed over the document on the fourteenth of February, and we get to you know just before Anzac Day, and the government releases a public version. I mean, that's incredibly quick. Mm. Anyone who's worked in government or understands how government works and all the stakeholders that would have to be involved in that. And I think the government's to be commended that they moved very quickly um, and that they got a document out into the public domain. And that's an important part of the national conversation. Um, The difference between the classified and unclassified, well, one of the great benefits it has for people like you and me, Rory, gives us plenty to write about, plenty to think about and plenty to debate. And I think in in a democracy such as ours, that's actually a really healthy and good thing. All these things... Um, can and should be contested um, in the marketplace of ideas. Um, and w- what I can basically tell you is is all the, virtually all the elements um, of uh, the document are in there. Uh, one thing that that was noticed, um, you know, that Paul Dib and a few others noticed, there is uh, mobilisation is, is in the terms of reference for the review and that is um, certainly covered in that version. In the public document, um, there's, there's not much of a mention of that, but it does talk about accelerated preparedness. And mm. for those who understand the context of where that goes, you know, I talk about that on a on either a ladder or or like a car in many respects. You know, if you're driving a manual car, you don't go from first gear to sixth gear. <laughs> You've got to go through the gears in between. And that accelerated preparedness component as part of this national defence approach put you on the on the on the pathway to this type of stuff. So that's a really important context setter. But um not everything, as we know, makes it into a um public version. But I can say to you the key concepts, the strategy, the capability direction, the posture elements are all and the preparedness stuff is all in there, which gives you a flavor of the direction of the review, if not, you know, the grassroots detail. We'll be right back. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Let's stay with the the content, if you like, and and talk about some of the recommendations and uh, some of the messages that really stand out. And we've all seen the headlines and the debate about, for example, um, the uh, changes to uh, force structure that, that that looked like taking place, uh, you know, informed by the recommendations of the review, uh, the changes to Army in particular and its uh, it, it, its mission and what it's equipped for, uh, the um, the emphasis on AUKUS, which is interesting because the DSR and AUKUS were two distinct processes, um, but there seems to be an unequivocal endorsement of uh, both pillars of AUKUS uh, in the DSR. And other recommendations about uh, really the the kind of military, the, the focused force that Australia needs, what for you were the recommendations that stood out and that perhaps didn't get enough um, if you like, accurate interpretation in the media commentary. Here's your chance. Uh, look, so first of all, I'd say all, all of what you've asked about is driven by the strategy and that's one of the things that um, I, I think I'm very proud of in working with the leads on this document. They took a very deliberative approach to this that this, the strategic environment had to be assessed, the strategy had to be put in place and that had to directly inform the capability decisions that come later on down the back end of the of the document as it should be. But as we all know that sometimes in doing defence policy doesn't always necessarily happen that way. Um, given the nature of the risk that we outlined at the beginning, there was a real driving point um, around changing the way that defence planning is done. And to give a plug to uh, another, an ANU colleague of yours and former colleague of mine, Stefan Frulling wrote a really good piece on Aspie's The Strategist about this. And of course, the Deputy Prime Minister and others have said, you know, this is a really important document. There's some significant changes there. And some people are going, well, there's not that much change on capability X or capability Y. But as Stefan pointed out, what there is a fundamental change to is the way we're doing defence planning and assessments that drives that force design. And I think that's one of the enduring features, for instance, of the DIB review that stood the test of time. It's, you know, capabilities, and platforms come and go. It's the architecture that informs that that's that's really important. And that's particularly around this notion of the DSR talking about levels of conflict, you know. Um, so there you can talk about, you know, competition, limited conflict and major war. Um, and particularly the focus on high-end conflict because of the end of warning time, which is now informed by a net assessment approach to defence planning. And also the layering in there of the focus on uh, deterrence by denial and the denial strategy, which that follows through. And of course, that's very much focused on our immediate region. That's the other thing, that it's it's very geographically focused in our region. And this then drives the development of, of A2AD or anti-access area denial capabilities. And because of that, you get a very different focus on force design and structure to what the ADF has been. And I think there's a real, um, as we said before, we're moving from the defence of Australia in low-level and escalated low-level threats where we had more of a balanced force mm. and capability-based planning. A bit of everything. A bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah. I, I, I have mean, to check. I mean that politely. Yeah, and yeah. I, have to, I yeah. have to check this, but someone actually pointed out to me the other day that it's so balanced um, that uh, if you look at the budget that, you know, Army, Navy and Air Force almost get equitable share of the budget. Mm. Um, and we're moving now to something that's 
around high-end conflict, around a particular um, driving force um, for that in the strategic environment and these capabilities. And it then leads you to what's called a focus force. It's focused on that high-end level um, of conflict that it has to worry about. Now, that um, is about addressing the most significant risks we face, and that's what you want defence planning to do. And it's very different, as I said, to that capability-based Sorry to interrupt you, so by high-end, for, for sort of lay listeners, that's that's war. That's war. That's major uh, that's power war conflict. or deterring war. And deterring, and det- and deterring yeah. major high-end conflict, yeah. So I, I think for developing this focus force, the most immediate and high-profile change we saw was in the land um, capability domain. Um, I know there's been some criticism, particularly around the, the the reduction in numbers of of the infantry fighting vehicles in Land 400 Phase Three, but you have to put this in the context of the strategy. And in fact, um, this is actually reshaping Army to sit at the centre of that denial strategy by giving Army long range fires and anti access area ca- um, denial capabilities. Um, the rapid acquisition uh, and acceleration in the size of the littoral craft that Army received, which will allow it to operate much more effectively, not just from the continent, but in the region in Southeast Asia and the South Pacific in, in particular. Also, um, you know, the increase in integrated air and missile defence capabilities, which includes Army at, at, at the centre of this. And then this is a focus, of course, around Army playing a role in what is fundamentally a maritime environment. And so playing a role with, with, with impact, projecting force with, with exactly, with and um, and this has to be looked into the broader suite here, which is about um, moving to an integrated force, and from a joint to an integrated force is really also about the importance of the cyber domain. And you know, many people have argued that we're not in competition in the cyber domain; we're in conflict or limited conflict already in that domain, and in space-based capabilities um, as well. And I think one of the really important parts of the document there's a there's a long list of of critical capabilities that the integrated force needs to be able to achieve to execute this particular strategy. So for Army, as I said, it, it's less it's changing its focus, but it's changing a focus to put it at the center of that strategy. But also it still allows the close combat capability, core part of what armies do, to be maintained and the development of a mechanized brigade, which arguably will have the most advanced tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and self-propelled guns in the, wor- in the world means that Army will actually be more capable than it's ever been in that space. And because of the the build-up of Army with Bushmaster and Hawkeye vehicles, it has the greatest levels of protection and mobility. And the other thing you saw during the course of the review was the the leads were um, brought into the conversation with government about other capabilities. And you saw the acceleration and acquisition of uh, Black Hawk helicopters and Apache attack helicopters. So Army's actually, I think, came out has come out of the review in a really opportunistic position and the chief of army has reflected the great opportunities that army has to to center itself in the um uh, in the middle of this strategy and provide a major contribution to that um, for the RAAF, again that focus again on El Razm on upgrading systems on long range strike to be involved in that but also the big focus if you see if you read the document carefully it's about people in Air Force, it's about readiness, preparedness, resilience, and upgrading its platforms, particularly air crew and ground crew, so you can get the most out of the platforms that we have and make them better prepared and hold them at higher readiness to be able to do those things. And of course, the Navy, um, we've seen a big focus through AUKUS Pillar 1, as well as autonomous systems in the underwater domain. And of course, an assessment on the on the surface fleet, which is um, a very short, continuing assessment. So on that, I'd say... It's not that the DSR didn't do the work on that. The leads have a very firm view, which is expressed in the document about the focus on, you know, long range strike for the surface fleet and on tier one and tier two com- surface combatants and the, and the trend in that area. But, you know, this is a very complex part of capability development and uh, the leads gave really good direction and information to government. What they needed to be was some more subject matter expertise to brought in to just finish that work off. It's a very short period of time before we get the outcome of that. So you, you've sort of cut through some of the, the media uh, commentary that suggests this was about sort of army losing and navy winning, to put it uh, really crudely. Ab- absolutely not. I think this – what. Because it's this focus on integrated force, all the domains have to work together. Yeah. This is absolutely critical. What it is is about reshaping army in in this instance – to meet the strategy and to have a centerpiece role. And I think that's really um, uh, critical 
of how you view. You can view it as the glass half empty or we're getting less infantry fighting vehicles. And I think Pat Conroy hit the nail on the head, you know, less self-propelled guns. Well, the self-propelled guns have, you know, a 40 or so kilometer range and they're getting one regiment less of those to get a regiment of long-range missiles that initially will go out to 270 kilometers and then 500 kilometers. And if you look at some of the publicly available information from the US about where the US Army are taking some of these capabilities, they're looking at 1,500 nautical miles is a, is a sort of longer term aiming point. So do you want an army that can only, you know, engage things at 40 kilometers or in a maritime environment like ours in an anti-access area denial uh, deterrence strategy, something that can hit something 270, 500 or 1500 kilometers away? Yeah, I guess if, you, if you're engaging at short range, and it's probably too late. Yeah. I think, one might yeah, one, <laughs> speculate. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and you mentioned uh, AUKUS. Now, AUKUS is really key, not just for the underwater domain piece for, um, uh, for Navy, at, as critical as that is, but AUKUS Pillar 1 is a longer-term investment. We know it's going to take time to get nuclear-powered submarines. But again, for a maritime nation, and that's what we are, um, with you know a trade-dependent maritime nation, our sea lines of communication and our northern approaches are critical, and submarines are critical of that. And any Navy officer or naval strategist who got out a map of Australia and said, this is where your base is and this is where your operational areas are and get attack- you want attack-class submarines would start with, well, the obvious thing is to get a nuclear-powered submarine. But also, as the government's discussed and Navy discussed, is the changing you know, ISR environment, the changing detecting capabilities means that conventional submarines um, having to come to the surface and snort. And I did say, one journalist say recently how great it is that that snorting as a terminology is now more broadly known in the Australian public, um, that they're becoming much more vulnerable and that a nuclear-powered submarine gives you just far more capability overmatch. Um, and the other part is AUKUS Pillar 2, which we haven't sort of spoken as much about in the public space and I think is going to become much more important. Um, that is about – if the strategy like it is is about developing asymmetric capabilities in key areas – AUKUS Pillar 2 is absolutely critical to that. So if you look at the long list of things in AUKUS Pillar 2, they're actually really essential along with the guided weapons and explosive ordnance and the development of autonomous systems um, to that. That then lines up Defence Science and Technology Group and the government's new capabilities accelerator around those asymmetric capabilities and around AUKUS. And that is how those things all come together. And AUKUS Pillar 2 is shorter term. So that the review goes out about 10 years and then AUKUS Pillar 1, the optimal pathway to the nuclear-powered submarines is the longer term It's a, it's a generational investment. It's a generation generational investment. Program. Yeah. And if you look at it, there's a CSIS report from a few years ago that talks about you know the United States attack submarines, the SSNs, are at least, at least that report says, a generation ahead of any potential adversary. And it's one of the areas where the United States maintains a huge asymmetric capability advantage over anybody else and that technology is being shared with with Australia and I'd like to point out that's because Australia went and asked the United States for the technology because we assessed that in our strategic environment this is a a capability that we needed and we went and asked the United States to be honest for the crown jewels of of US Navy um, classified technology and because that aligned up um, with what we needed, but also with the US strategy about empowering allies, then we now have one of the most um, forward-leaning capability investments in Australian history. So when we go to the sovereignty debate on AUKUS, it's worth remembering that it was an Australian initiative. It, absolutely, it was an Australian initiative. Let, let's, Peter, before we wrap up, go to a couple of other themes that I really want to drill into. One, of course, is money. Uh, so one of the – and when we're recording this actually in uh, in budget week – here in Canberra, and, and already, as um, some observers have been uh, digesting what's in the budget and looking at the defence budget in particular, there's some commentary saying, well, hang on, uh, how is the DSR reflected in the budget, uh, at least in the short term and yep. the, the forward estimates? Uh, what's your take on that? Look, there's, there's been a lot of chatter. Where, where's and, the money? Is the yeah, simple, well, there's been a lot of chatter and discussion line, about yeah. where, where the money is. And I, I think- a couple of things, observations that I'll, I'll make about this. First of all, the DSR was delivered and uh, the DSR team didn't have a huge finance section and budgeting organisation and it was done in seven months. So it's put in some pretty radical changes to the integrated investment plan, which the government specifically put in the terms of reference. To then for the department to swallow that elephant, and it's a pretty big elephant, for the government and the department to swallow that 
digest that and understand and actually figure out the full cost of that, it's going to take a fair while. My, my personal view is if you gave defence a significant injection of funds now, it would either um, not be able to be spent or probably not be spent in the most optimal yeah. way. So part of this review was recommending the movement to a national defence strategy. The government accepted that. The recommendation is that the first one should happen next year. And realistically- And every two years, right? And then every two years after that, realistically, it's going to take nine to 12 months, in my view, of the department to actually digest the changes to the integrated investment plan, to reorganise that, and to stop the things that has been recommended to stop and look at the things that they can slow down to reprioritise them against what the review says. Until that is done, no one will have any idea how much this will cost. Now, my understanding is that the government has committed to increase defence funding in line with what the uh, last government had done. So there is still new money coming into defence. Um, and it's reorganised around its priorities that it's announced in relation to the DSR, the six priority areas they, they indicated, including significant um, money being moved into um, the guided weapons and explosive ordnance um, issue. So it is fundamentally true to say, as Arthur Tang did, its strategy without funding is not strategy. But what I would say is I wouldn't be rushing yet to to judge the government on its commitment to funding because nobody knows, neither the government or the department yet, what the DSR is going to cost. The government will have to make decisions about the recommendations that are in there around timelines and the organisation of the integrated investment plan. And of course, as we've already seen, the government's announced significant savings by the reprioritisation within that plan. And that's going to take a long bit of work. Now, the other part I'll say is that, um, as we mentioned earlier, statecraft was a really big focus of the document. Penny Wong has led off with a fantastic speech. And the document talks about the need to reinvest in Australian statecraft and including in diplomacy. And it's, I have to say, it's probably a pretty radical thing for a defence document to come out and talk about the importance of funding DFAT. And in the budget last night, that's what happened. So not only did we see a sequencing of Penny Wong talking and laying the groundwork of the national strategy foreign policy level for the DSR to be delivered, we're now seeing the injection of funding into DFAT, which is appropriate to lead that charge, while defence is you know, working through reprioritising and reinvesting um, existing money, finding efficiencies, and also digesting the document. And I would hope personally that we get to the NDS and that's a clearer articulation of the government of the full recommendations within the DSR. And then by then, they'll have a much better chance to identify where the budget investments need so to made and how they can stage that out. The NDS, that's the National Defence Strategy. Strategy every two. So, so your understanding is that those will be costed? I would hope so. Like my personal views here, I'm talking here, is that um, as they go to that, that will give the department the time and the government the time it needs to start to ingest what are the costs of these things. And realistically, you know, 12 months is the first indigestion. One of the reasons of moving to a two-year process is so rather than intermittent white papers that happen every now and again and that, you know, you worked on one in 2016 can take up to two years to go through the system, this is a rolling cycle to continually assess the changing, rapidly changing strategic environment and also the the funding envelopes and where the priorities or investment are. So what this is doing is setting up a much better framework, I think, and functional approach to doing this. But I do think we have to give the government and the Department of Defence time to absorb this rather significant changes that's been asked to be done to the way they do planning, the way they do force design and the way they're developing a capability suite. Three things before we wrap up, and I'll try and cover them in fairly quick succession. You've already mentioned statecraft, and I want to come back to that. Um, I'd be interested in unpacking more clearly this term, this concept, national defence, uh, as distinct from the defence of Australia. And then finally, just maybe a quick word about the international reaction. I know you were in the, you were in the United States recently, yep. so I assume you had some conversations yes, there absolutely. about this. Um the the whole of and I don't just mean statecraft actually the whole of government um, character of some of the messaging in the uh, the DSR was quite striking to me because there were moments there where it felt a little bit like um, the uh, the edge of a national security strategy uh, a you know a framework that I think many of us have have long advocated that Australia needs just as some years ago reading the foreign policy white paper although it was not uh, necessarily costed, and 2017, the foreign policy white paper had some good yep. whole of government national security strategy type thinking on things like resilience and uh, you know the domestic, the, the home front, etc. 
the um, the national strategy element to the DSR was actually quite explicit, and I'm assuming in the classified version it was even pointier. I certainly hope so. Um, I wonder if you can offer some views on what your thinking is on national security strategy, the need for one, whether in fact we're seeing thoughts in that direction in the DSR, and perhaps even any light you can shed on, um, I guess, how the process, and I know this is potentially straying into areas where you, where you can't um, necessarily share things, Peter, but how the process for producing the DSR may have touched other parts of government, engaged whole of government. Yeah, look, certainly, um, you know, the document talks about national defence, and that's a really important move from Defence of Australia to national defence, and that's really reflective, as we said, the move from low-level and escalator-level threats to much higher-level threats. And the document very explicitly says that that strategic circumstances we discussed before um, are not for defence to grapple with alone. This is a much bigger problem. We need it talks about both a unifying national strategic approach and a new approach to our um, nation's defence. And as I said, the, the terms of reference talked about strategy. We mentioned talking about material and, and political factors in that. And the leads took a very systematic approach of assessing the strategic environment, but also assessing in the period over the last 10 years what the Australian government has done in response to these changing strategic circumstances. And, you know, I think you get this very directly from Penny Wong's speech we mentioned before. It's about the balance of power and Australia's role in that balance of power and that Australia's been undertaking, whether it's been called out or not, a balancing strategy in the region. We've undertaken significant internal and external balancing measures as the strategic environment um, has adjusted. And that as Penny Wong articulated in that speech, provides the framework for which in the defence strategy component piece, the deterrence by denial and the denial strategy piece had to sit within well, what's that goal? And the overall game is about a favourable balance of power for Australia to be able to maintain its sovereignty free from coercion to pursue those interests. But if we were attempted to be coerced militarily, um, that no power could do that without being held at risk as the document talks about um, in that sense. So, and as it talks about major power competition involves threats and risks beyond anything we faced since the Second World War. That meant the Defence of Australia doctrine is no longer suitable. Um, so this now national defence talks about um, against potential threats arising from major power competition, including the prospect of conflict. Um, and it says dot point number one of national defence is a defence strategy and policy supporting of a whole of nation strategies. So hence the emphasis on statecraft, on the bringing together of and, – and, you know, I think you see this operating wonderfully well in the government at the moment. Bringing together foreign policy and defence policy, for example. Yeah, yeah bringing yeah. foreign policy and defence policy together. Um, what I'd probably say from a personal perspective, and this is something at USSC that um, we've been speaking about and discussing a lot – Probably the, another element of that needs to be, um, you know, uh, where our economic policy sits yeah. in relation to that. And, and national defense and resilience, as the document talks about, also talks about diversity of supply chains and, and other factors as well. So you need to bring all of these, um, things together in, and having new approaches to manage the risk across government as well. And that's all too big a job for defence alone. I mean, it's too big a job. It goes to society. It yep. goes to a whole range of government departments and agencies in the private exactly. sector as well. And look, to, to slightly move on to something related to this, the, the, the document talks about climate change, has a whole section on climate change. But one of the things, and, and the security risks around climate change, which are very real, but one of the things it talks about is that the ADF can't be continually used to the level it has been on domestic civilian disaster risks um, because it has to focus on the risks it's trying to manage in the international sphere. And also it's the arm of government that we use to support our neighbours when climate change causes disasters and effects in our region, which are only growing in existence. Well, that's part of that whole national defence stuff. If the state governments, the local governments and the domestic arms of the federal government are taking on more of a role in dealing with that to alleviate defence from that role, except as the document says, in the really extreme circumstances, that kind of division of labour is building more national resilience and enabling more national defence. So that's why it's becoming much bigger. Um, I'll say on a national security strategy, on a, on a, I'll say this on a personal level, not on a, uh, not on a DSR well, you're, you're level. You're out of harness now, yeah, right? Yeah, so. um, on a Peter Dean <laughs> personal level. I, I, 
like like you, Rory, I've written before advocating for a national security strategy. Now, I think the government's done a, a pretty good job of articulating their broader um, understanding between the speeches that the foreign minister, defence minister and prime minister have had. We got the the prime minister's address to the Shangri-La dialogue coming up. And I'd add home affairs. It's been fascinating to hear yep. uh, Claire O'Neill talk about resilience in the way she has. Exactly. And that's where I was exactly going to go next, the importance here of home affairs. Um, we've we've seen that driven home too by the data breaches we've had and the s- cybersecurity concerns we've had. You know, the reorganisation in home affairs about how cybersecurity is done on the domestic front has all been um, really critical. And to me personally, um, I'd really love to see the government articulate that in a national security strategy, which then, you know, would flow off the back end of uh, into that would be a national defence strategy. So the, the DSR, you know, has the opportunity because it was asked to do strategy writ large, writ large the contextual part of that it had to outline that national strategic um, approach, um, which was really clearly articulated by the foreign minister in her speech, to be able to provide a framework of which national defence can sit with inside. So I said, on a personal level, I'd love to see the government come out with a national security strategy. It'll be interesting to see what the Prime Minister's speech at Shangri-La says and also how they sort of progress this because we know the challenges are beyond defence, as the document says, and in an age of strategic competition, it's touching on you know, everything from sovereign supply chains to fuel security to cyber security, as we've seen, and a whole range of, of elements within our society. We need to use everything we've got. And just to wrap up then, Peter, the international dimension, uh, you were in the United States recently, uh, one very clear message in the uh, published DSR and in the uh, the uh, explanations that the uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles uh, expressed in, in releasing this was that we are, uh, in a sense, doubling down on the technology, the defence technology relationship with the United States. Uh, in many ways, while also pursuing, in fact, in order, uh, paradoxically, to advance our self-reliance <laughs> in some areas, we're intensifying Absolutely. the alliance relationship yep. with the United States. There's uh, lots of intense debate about uh, American strategic objectives in the Indo-Pacific. Is it primacy? Is it is it balance? Is it something else? Uh, question marks, of course, about the future of the United States, uh, perhaps future changes of administration, mm-hmm. Can we rely on them and so forth? Uh, none of this is uh, is new uh, for this conversation, but you've been engaged in probably some very interesting discussions in the United States about this recently. What's your own view on how the DSR has been received in the United States and how you interpret uh, that view or that message that this is uh, this this involves actually a certain degree of a uh, considerable degree of risk in doubling mm. down on the relationship with the United States. Yeah, look, the, the document's very frank in saying that our alliance partner in the United States is no longer the unipolar leader of the Indo-Pacific. Um, now, I know in some areas that's a contested idea. We have some people in, in Australia saying that, well, the US is still pursuing primacy and they're in strategic competition with China and that they're willing to almost go to war to maintain primacy. I haven't bought into that argument mm. myself personally. The DSR as a document doesn't. By the way, I don't think the US strategic documents buy into that argument. No, well, yeah. that, that's the thing. I'd say if you read US strategic documents, they don't buy into that either. Now, we did have the, the declassified Trump Indo-Pacific strategy document, which did talk about primacy. But if you go back and look at the US national security strategy and national defense strategy, particularly with their emphasis on empowering allies and partners and developing you know, uh, their concept of integrated deterrence, that is a very clear direction of US strategic policy where they, they admit fundamentally that they don't have primacy and they're not seeking to maintain it. They're seeking to maintain a favorable balance of power in the region as well. And as the document points out, while the United States is declining relative, relatively, um, it's still the cornerstone balancing power in the region. It is absolutely fundamental that they are involved in our region. And you know, with the exception of one or two countries in the Indo-Pacific, they all want the US to stay deeply involved. Um, what it's becoming, as, as the document talks out and, and Penny Wong spoke about in his speech, is, is that we're getting a more multipolar region. The emphasis then becomes on states like Australia and Japan, for instance, um, 
you know, India, Singapore, and other and others to main all contribute to maintaining that stability um, in our region. Now, when I went to the United States, I just got back last week, and I had really great um, access across the board in in Washington D.C. I was wondering how they were going to first of all respond to that statement, and largely speaking, well, everyone said to me that they agreed with it, and some of them actually said to me. It's really good that you were just that frank and direct because not all, sometimes not our own policy documents are that frank and that direct. Certainly the, the DSR I think was very well received. Its assessment of what was the trends that were happening in the region, you know, the emphasis on Australia developing greater capability to do more self-reliance and to do a greater contribution to that regional balance was very favourably received. And I think if you look in some of the trends that's happening, you know, we had a recently the, the Japanese released their national security strategy in NDS, which had a similar emphasis on long-range strike, much more forward-leaning from the Japanese and a significant increase of their budget about them being more forward-involved too. And they speak about in a different version or way that, that same emphasis on the balance of power um, and maintaining the military balance in the region which will then provide deterrence, which will help to hopefully ensure that we don't end up in conflicts. And that's the thing from a personal point of view, what I, what I would always say is that if a power ends up with what it believes is military overmatch, as we saw Putin obviously thought he did have in Ukraine, it can lead to the type of adventurism with military force and coercion um, that nobody wants to see. But if all the states in the region understand that there's a relative military balance and that the use of force will not be a positive way to resolve disputes, then we have a better chance of maintaining peace and stability, which the document says at the very beginning, that's what it's trying to do. The aim here is to maintain peace, secure peace and prosperity um, you know, for our nation. So, Peter, thank you so much. I think uh, my, my sense is that you made a very significant contribution to, to this document and you've been very uh, lucid and frank within the the bounds of, I guess, the, the classified work you've been um, exposed to uh, in sharing your insights with us on the podcast today. So thank you again for joining the National Security Podcast and we look forward to uh, working with you again in the future. Thanks very much, Rory. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.